a section that covers uh, a big theological term called justification. And all that means is something similar to what we sang about this morning. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus does not allow good people to go to heaven contrary to what the culture dictates, to what every world religion teaches you is you've got to be a good little boy and a good little girl. The Bible is honest with you and says you're not good. The Bible says you've you got a problem. And only that, you've got a holy and just God that's determined the penalty. The penalty's death. And not only that, but you need a righteousness equal to God to get to heaven. Here's the good news. Romans in the first five chapters through verse 11 tells us what the solution is. God doesn't expect you to come up with a solution. God has come up with a solution. He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross in your place for your sins. And then God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf by raising him from the dead. What's left to do with the finished work? Well, God says, if you put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you, you can go to heaven. Simple as that. Sins are forgiven. It's a free gift. Salvation is indeed by grace, something you'll never earn, never merit. And in fact, he encourages us in Romans 4, stop working, stop trying, and start trusting in his provisions. So that's what we've looked at in the book of Romans. And so I thought it would be good to break out because many people shake their head in agreement when they hear that message. But when we start to challenge what the gospel's not, that's when the hairs on the back of our necks stand up because now we're bucking up against cultural Christianity. And see, cultural Christianity uh, many times takes this message of the gospel, this finality of what Jesus Christ has done. When he said, it is finished, he meant It's completely done. And yet we have this issue in cultural Christianity where we want to try to put one more thing that we have to do to earn salvation. And it could be something simple as we've looked at, like praying a prayer, walking an aisle, and all the other churchianity type things that we hear in our day. And no, the Bible is very clear. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And see, the, the moment that one puts their faith in the finished work of Christ, they're saved. They pass from death to life. Nothing left to be done. It truly is a religion of done, not do. Jesus did it all. And so that's what we've looked at. But why are we making such a big deal about what the gospel is not? If you'll just really quickly join me in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. I want to show you One reason why I'm spending so much time, we're going to spend one more week on this, and then we're going to get back to the expository teaching in the book of Romans. We'll start working verse by verse through the book again. But this is why I think it's so important. And let me just kind of preface it with this. Colossians 2.6 is the verse we're going to read. Here's the issue. Just like building a house, just like building a building, if your foundation is shaky, if it's got cracks in it, if there's a misunderstanding of exactly how you do that, um, you know, if, if we had a builder here and, and you showed up on site to watch him and, and he said, man, was that three bags of concrete or four? Was that one-eighth inch rebar or three-fourths inch rebar? Ah, uh, whatever, just what do you got? Just throw it in there. We'd be like, whoa, whoa. Wait, Nelly, because we're about to put something on top of that foundation. We're, we're not just laying concrete down just to lay concrete down. We actually want to do something with it. And see, I believe that if you're unclear in this area of justification, meaning God declaring you righteous, this area of salvation from the penalty of sin, if there's lack of clarity there, it's going to impact your spiritual life. It's going to slow you down in your spiritual growth. How do I or what do I base that on? Look at Colossians 2.6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
See, if you don't understand how you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, or you're confused in that area, and you think you're giving your heart to Christ, or asking Christ into your heart, or you're praying a prayer, or you're doing this, walking an aisle, raising your hand, doing 20 jumping jacks, whatever it is that people tell you you must do to be saved, that's going to creep into your Christian life. And then you're going to think your Christian life is about doing this and stop doing that. And what we're going to find in Romans 6 is that's not the answer to the Christian life. That's not the answer to spirituality. That's not the answer to spiritual growth. And so if we're not clear on the front end, how in the world can we build on top of it? And so that's why we're taking a little bit more time on this. Bear with me. We will move into sanctification in a couple weeks. And I know there's going to be a glory hallelujah on that. And I'm going to say glory hallelujah too, because I'm looking forward to it. But we got to get the foundation right. Got to get the foundation right. And so we're going to continue in that message today of looking what the gospel is not. And as a quick review, we've looked at this a lot, but, but just remember the gospel itself is an objective, historical, verifiable message that happened on a day in history 2,000 years ago. The gospel's not about you, right? We read in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the good news about what the Son of God did 2,000 years ago on a day in human history on a hill called Golgotha when he died for your sins and rose again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You're not anywhere in that message. The gospel is not about what goes on in your little heart. The gospel is not about what goes on in this altar, which there's not even an altar up here, right? It's not about you walking the aisle. It's not about you giving your heart. The gospel is about a person and what he did and accomplished on a day in human history. The gospel is about Jesus Christ in his work. It's about his person. He's fully God. He's fully man. And it's about his work. He died for your sins and he rose again. That's the gospel. That's why if somebody has 30 seconds to live and you come upon them on the road and they say, what must I do to go to heaven? You can share this message in under 30 seconds. You don't tell, you don't have to tell the person like some woman told me one time. I said, what's it take to get to heaven? You got to read the Bible. All 66 books. They're, they're, They're gasping for air. They got 30 seconds to live. No, no. Jesus died for your sins and rose again. If you simply believe in him, you're saved. That's what the Bible teaches. And so that's what we go back to is the word of God. And this is what we preach. We're preaching the gospel. Why the need for the gospel? Why is this the only message that can save? We kind of identified it earlier. We looked at it. There's a twofold problem each person has. First, there's a death penalty, a debt that you cannot pay. The wages of sin is death. And you can't pay that, or you can for eternity. You can pay that penalty. The second problem is you have an unrighteousness that you can't make perfect. You can't go back in time and become perfect. You are corrupt. I'm corrupt. That's what the Bible teaches. And see, in the gospel, God takes care of both of these issues. Death was the penalty. Christ died for you. You have a righteousness that you can't obtain on your own. God is going to credit Christ's righteousness to you. He takes care of both problems in one fell swoop. Jesus did it all. So if he accomplished it all, what's the only response left? How do you respond to a finished work? How do you receive a gift? Well, you don't pull out your wallet and say, let me pay you for that. You, you receive it. 
That's what the Bible says. How do you receive a gift? You put your faith, you believe on the one who died for you and rose again. And that's the only response the Bible gives as to what it takes to be saved. Now, why do we have all of these other cliches in there? We've kind of looked at that in the past few weeks. I believe it's an underlying satanic attack on the only message that can save. You know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. That's it. It's simple. In fact, it's so simple, it's hard for people. They, <laughs> we want to add something to it. You know, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, I, you know, that's how we naturally think. We want to add something to it. And God is satisfied. Will you be satisfied with what Jesus did for you? That's the million-dollar question. You know, religion says that Jesus did 90% or Jesus did 99%. It doesn't matter if you have any percentage left that you need to do. It is a salvation by works. You have no different message than any other religion in the world, whether that's Mormonism, Buddhism, Hinduism, anything. You got the same message because you got to do something to get there. If Jesus did 99.9% and you have to do 0.1%, you are indeed calling God a liar. You were shouting from the cross if you were there. When Jesus said, it is finished, you would say, no, it's not. There's 0.1% left still for me to do. And see, we're just taking the Bible at face value. God says, Jesus did it 100%. And all you have to do is trust in the work that he accomplished for you. This is God's grace. This is salvation by grace. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. You know, we've got VBS coming up this week. We've got Awana starting um, next month. And, you know, one of the founders, co-founders of Awana, Lance Latham, Doc Latham, uh, <clears throat> wrote this. Ask any religious person, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He'll say, of course. Is this man therefore saved? In other words, religious people don't have a problem with Jesus Christ. They don't mind mixing him into their solution as a part of the solution, what they have a problem with is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ to meet the solution. That's the problem that many religious people have. The real question is, where are your, where's your hope? Are you depending upon Christ alone and what he's done at Calvary? Or is your hope in penances performed, masses, baptisms, and so forth? This is not faith in Christ and his work. It is faith in you and your own works. None of these can save. A lifetime of tears, vows, faithfulness to a church, and daily self-denial could not bring peace to a hungry heart. But we're here today to tell you if you need peace, you can find it in Jesus Christ. You can find it in him alone. He's done it all. He's paid it all. God requires nothing more from you than to simply trust in what God is satisfied with, which is Jesus paying the penalty for your sins. But as we've been looking at confusion abounds. Uh, just like this sign, you know, do not follow and keep left. Or this sign, garbage only, no trash. Or this sign that we looked at last week that makes you want to crawl up in a fetal position and not get out of bed. What, which direction do you go here? And many of the, the gospel cliches do exactly this. Give your heart to Christ. Ask him in your, okay, am I going or coming? Is he going or coming? What's going on? Am I praying a prayer? Am I doing jumping jacks in the back? Am I raising a hand so you can come around and lock him into my heart? I mean, what, what is going on with these cliches? And then finally, that's a really great one too. One way, each way, or you can go either way. You know, this doesn't make sense. And so as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, confusion number one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago 
is this idea of giving your heart or life to God. And we asked the question that day, is it you giving your heart or life to God or did Christ give his life for you? Which one do you want to base your eternity on? I'm going with letter B on that one. I'm going on the fact that Christ gave his life for me. Confusion number two, confessing your sins. We looked um, hopefully in detail that this is a truth for the believer, one who's already saved to be restored back to fellowship, but not the means by which an unsaved person gets saved. We looked at that. If you had to confess all your known sins to get saved, you'd be in trouble because you can't even remember what you had for dinner last night, let alone the sins you've committed two weeks ago. If that was how you got to heaven, it wouldn't be that way. Confusion three, we looked at the sinner's prayer and that it's not found in the Bible, that no sinner's prayer is the same and that there's not one example in the scriptures of somebody leading somebody else in a prayer to get saved. Where did this come? I mean, these are the kind of things that we've been looking at, but these are so part of our Christian and church culture. Confusion four, ask for forgiveness. You get forgiveness of sins the moment you put your faith in Christ and you get relational or fellowship forgiveness when you confess your sins as a believer. You never ask God for forgiveness of sins. Why? Because when you ask God, implied is doubt. He can say yes or no, implied in that question. And the point is, God has provided forgiveness of sins. Will you simply trust the method that he's provided for it? Confusion number five, we looked at last week or a couple, whenever, the last time I was here, make a public verbal confession. So we would have to add our public verbal confession to Christ's work. And again, you see, we add a work. Now, I'm going to tackle one this morning. It's actually probably pretty good timing as we're getting ready to embark on our VBS and Awana coming up. And that's this one. Um, it's really the king daddy of, of them all in our culture today. And that's this, this phrase, asking Jesus into your heart. In fact, this is probably the most common and most popular of all gospel response cliches in our modern day. Um, I would imagine that everybody in this room at some level at some time has heard this phrase, maybe been instructed to do this phrase. And so we're going to look at this today and see why it's not biblical. This phrase took Christianity by storm back in the 70s when the children's ministries, all of these ministries started to become more formalized and kind of brought to the forefront. And rightfully so, we've got option, we've got these opportunities with all these little kids running around our church um, to share the gospel with them, to share the truth of how and what it takes to get to heaven. So why wouldn't we focus on that or make that an emphasis? But this is probably where this cliche uh, got introduced. And here's the, here's the issue. It was done out of a sincere heart because they wanted to clarify the response to the gospel, especially for children. They wanted children to really understand what it took to get saved. So they developed this phrase, asking Jesus into your heart, But this morning, we're going to look at six reasons not to ask Jesus into your heart. And we'll kind of just cover these one by one. You know, one pastor that I was aware of estimated that he had asked Jesus into his heart over 600 times from the age of 6 to 18. Because the way he figured that was he walked the aisle 50 weeks out of a 52-week year every year from the time he was 6 to 18 because he wasn't quite sure he did it right. He wasn't quite sure that God accepted him. He wasn't quite sure he said the right words. And so imagine that. And I, I believe that if I gave everybody an opportunity this morning to testify, that many of you would say, yeah, I've, I can relate to that. Maybe not 600 times, but I know I've done it many times. And so we're going to look um, at this confusion. Again, trying to stay clear on the gospel 
trying to understand that what Jesus did was, was, was all that needed to be done and that we simply have to rest or trust in him and his finished work to get saved. Reason number one, you should never ask Jesus in your heart. Well, it's never found in the Bible. Like, that's a short sermon. I mean, that's, that's a 15-minute sermon. We can just go home, right? We, we don't need any other reason, hopefully. Um, but we'll provide some additional reasons. But you know, it's never found in the Bible. In fact, if you ever get into a s- discussion with somebody that says you got to ask Jesus in your heart and that's biblical, just ask him where the verse is for that. Ask him to show it to you. It's not there. Nobody's been ever, ever been able to show or share that verse because it's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible um, is anyone instructed to ask Jesus into their heart to be saved. Nowhere in the Bible is there one example of this happening. So beyond this, is there, is there any other reason we really need? But, but this is pretty, a pretty big uh, reason. In fact, I would say it's safe to assume that if you never listen to Christian radio, you never watch Christian TV, you never listen to a podcast or an MP3, or you never attended an evangelistic crusade or church, you would never conclude on your own that you must do this simply by reading the Bible because it's not there. It's not there. And yet it is embedded into our culture. It is embedded into our churches. And in fact, many people might even be saying right now, what is the big deal? <laughs> this is, what's the big deal? It's basically saying the same thing. And, you know, interestingly enough, it, it's not saying the same thing. They're not synonymous phrases. If we just look at the Oxford thesaurus and we simply looked at the word ask and the word faith, they don't say the same thing. You wouldn't even use it interchangeably in a normal conversation. If you did, people would think you were crazy. Um, faith, have some potato chips? Faith, faith, can I have some potato chips? You know, I, I mean, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't insert, you wouldn't insert faith for ask. You, they don't go together. They're not even saying the same thing. And yet, so many times in these cliches, that's what we do. And, it's, and, and the person that's never heard it before is like, wait a minute, right turn? Left turn, don't go back, don't go forward, stop. What? They're confused, and we're confusing them because, as I've said before, some of the tracks that we pass out in our churches have eight different ways to get saved listed in the track. And the person that wrote it, all sincerity, thought they were saying the same thing every single time, and it's not. It's don't go left, don't go right, don't go forward, don't go back, and stop. And the person that reads it for the first time has never been exposed to church is like, What? What does it take to get saved? Now I'm more confused than ever. Now, don't misunderstand. Christ does come in and live in the believer's heart when they put their trust in him alone, not because they ask him to. It's a result of salvation, not the means to being saved. That's the distinction that we're making. Is Christ in our hearts after we put our faith in him? Yes. Bible clearly teaches that. In fact, we see that in Colossians 1.27, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we see Christ in us, but it's as a result of putting our faith in Christ, being saved. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not, it's not that we're saying Christ is not in the believer. We're saying he doesn't get in there by asking him to come in. He gets in there the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the distinction that we're making. Reason number two, 
uh, that we should not ask Jesus in our heart because it's not how one is saved. That's not how you get saved. Just look at a couple of verses. Notice how Paul and Silas respond in Acts 16, 30 and 31. It's not by asking Jesus in your heart. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, not asking Jesus in your heart. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, notice we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by asking Jesus in your heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In fact, do you know that in the New Testament alone, there's 160 verses that give faith as the only prerequisite to be saved? This is the response. (laughs) We preach the gospel and we exhort a faith response to the gospel. We don't want to confuse it by giving people more things to do. We want them to trust in the finished work of Christ. And so, again, this is the emphasis that we find in the Bible. You know, there was a story of a 12-year-old boy uh, that a a friend relayed to me who would go forward every week during the youth Bible study and ask Jesus into his heart. And one day, my my friend was able to talk to Ricky, and he kept um, asking him, why do you keep going forward? He says, well, I I just don't know if I did it right, and I, and I just don't know if, if he heard me, and I just don't know if he came to stay, to, to stay in, and I, and I just don't know. I just, I just figure it's safer to keep asking him in my heart. And, you know, my friend said, Ricky, I want to take you to a, a Bible verse that's very common, John three sixteen. And he said, and, I, and all I want you to do is I want you to put your name in this verse. And I want to know what you have to do to be saved. Is it asking Jesus in your heart or is it something else? And so John three sixteen, and Ricky inserted his name and he read it this way. For God so loved Ricky that he gave his only begotten son that if Ricky believes in him, he should not perish but have everlasting life. And you know, at that moment, Ricky realized he didn't have to ask Jesus into his heart to be saved. He simply had to believe on the one who died for him and rose again. That's the shift that we want to move toward in the sharing of our gospel. This is what we want to share with the kids who are attending our VBS this week. This should be the message that we share as anyone walks in this church. If you're 80 or you're in your 90s or you're in your teens or you're in your 30s or your 40s, if they ask you what it took to get to heaven, we should be able to communicate this message with clarity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why him? Because he's the one who died for you and rose again. That's the message. That's the gospel. That has the power to save. Nothing else does it. So we want to be clear with that, not get distracted. Reason number three, why you should not ask Jesus into your heart. It, it, it requires no understanding of the gospel to do it. You don't even have to know the gospel to ask Jesus into your heart. You don't even have to know that Jesus died for your sins or rose again to ask Jesus into your heart. You don't have to know any of that. You just repeat a prayer. You just ask him, come into my heart. You don't have to know anything. Remember, the gospel, as we, def- as we understand it, defined in scriptures, is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And you um, can ask Jesus into your heart without believing or knowing this. You don't even have to know this to ask Jesus in your heart. That's what's so crazy. You know, over the years, it, it just hundreds of conversation about people uh, regarding salvation. You know, what I have found is, is interesting is that more than half the time when people say, I got saved when I asked Jesus into my heart, that they never bring up his work on the cross. 
That never even comes into the equation. In fact, in fact, the only time they mention Jesus is in the phrase, ask Jesus into my heart. And when I dig a little bit deeper, or have dug a little bit deeper, you know where they go to immediately after that? You know, they used to teach, I'm, I'm kind of getting distracted, but I'll come back here. You know, they used to te- they teach the, the drive-through people at McDonald's and these fast food places. You, you never try to cut off the customer. You know, if they order a hamburger, the next question is, is there anything else? It's kind of suggestive marketing. Well, yeah, now that you mention it, how about some fries? Anything else? Yeah, now that you mention it, a milkshake. And, and your goal is just like keep them going and going and going. Well, I'm not saying I do that in my conversations, but sometimes when people say, I ask Jesus in my heart, I'll say, okay, is there anything else? And you know where they inevitably go to? Good works. Well, yeah, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, I try to go to church. Anything else? Uh, yeah, light some candles. Um, okay, anything else? Yeah, and they're just like throwing the kitchen sink at it. And you know, honestly, I don't want them to have that conversation with God on the day of judgment. Anything else? Yeah, this and this and, and defending themselves. I want them to come up with one answer. God, that man seated at your right hand with the holes in his wrist and the holes in his feet, he died for me. That's my only chance is that man seated right here. And if he's not good enough for you, God, I don't have a chance. But I'm trusting in that one, the one who died for me and rose again. And so when we get to this idea of asking Jesus in your heart, many people don't even understand. In fact, you can walk up to anybody on the street of Noonan today and say, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And what are they going to say? Yeah. How do I get there? Well, you just got to ask Jesus in your heart. Just repeat after me. And most people will just throw that in the mix. Whew, okay, I'm covered there now. Got that one covered. And they don't even know Jesus. They don't even know what Jesus did for them. Many times we haven't made that connection. There's quite a difference between asking Jesus into your heart or knowing that you're saved because Jesus died for your sins and rose again and you're trusting in his work for you. There's a difference. There's, there's understanding when you tell somebody to believe. Why Jesus? Why do I have to believe in him? In fact, when we give that proper response, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the natural follow-up question is why Jesus? Why him? Why do I have to trust in Jesus? Implied is there's something that he is, something that he did, i.e. the gospel that you must rely upon, and it's unique to him, uniquely something that he performed on your behalf that you're trusting in. And so even the response of faith is not nebulous. We're not about, oh, you just have to have faith. No, I mean, we're not doing a local news report. And, and just talking to some random person on the street, oh, I just had faith, uh, faith got me. No, 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 we're talking about specific object of faith. We're talking about putting your faith in a specific person who did a specific thing 2,000 years ago on a day in history. It's specifically trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. It's very specific. And so that would be the question that's begged with the proper response of belief. Reason number four, Do you know that asking Jesus in your heart either results in no assurance of salvation or it brings a false assurance to some? Both are very scary. They they confuse the means of salvation with the results of salvation. They put the cart before the horse. And so many people walking around don't even know if they're saved or not because they're very confused. And that's why many people who have asked Jesus in their heart have done it more than 
wants. That proves a point. In fact, just, I don't typically do this in our church, and, and some of you have been, have grown up in, in good homes and have been well taught, but, but even, even before we moved here, we were going to an Awana program um, in the Rockwell, not Plano Bible Chapel. It's my friend Ruthie, I don't want her to worry. Um, not Plano Bible Chapel, another, another church that we were going to at the time, and one of the teachers came up to my son Cody at the time and said, Cody, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? And Cody was shot. I mean, we talk about this in our home. And he just said, uh, no. And um, I told him, tell him next time no, because your dad told you not to ever do that. Because <laughs> I want to get into a conversation with, with your teacher. But, you know, he was young. He was trying to be respectful. So I say that just to say that even if you're raised in a home that's teaching the word of God, you've probably still been exposed to this. So is there anybody in here at any time in their life that has ever asked Jesus in their heart? Would you just raise your hand and just keep it up? I just want you to look around the room real quick, okay? Now, keep your hand up, because here's question number two. Those of you that did, did keep your hand up if you did it more than once. Okay, this happens everywhere I've ever talked about this issue. No, I don't think any hands went down, or maybe someone's hand went down. Everyone keeps it up. Why? Because it doesn't provide any assurance. You're always asking the question, did I do it right? Did he come in? Did, did I say the right words? Did I? And so apart from that, what if I tell you that Jesus did it all? That Jesus died for every one of your sins, and God accepted his death in your place by rising him from the grave. And all you have to do is trust that he died for you in your place and that God will accept you to heaven. See, now I know it's done. Now I can rest in what he did. And now my confidence is in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished, not in myself and my ability to ask the right question, massage God the right way, say the right words. Oh, it's gonna, now it's just I'm trusting in the finished work of another. And I'm confident that God accepts his work on my behalf because that's what the Bible says. And so now I'm resting in the finished work of Christ. In fact, you know, suppose a, a wealthy millionaire wants to offer you $5 million. Um, by the way, if, if, if you find someone like that, just send them to me first. I'd like to visit with them first. <laughs> no, just kidding. So he, he offers you $5 million. He says, here's $5 million. I want you to personally have it. While I know you don't deserve it, nor have you earned it, you can have it right now as a love gift from me to you. What would you do with that scenario? I'd, I'd be like, okay, let me have it right now before you change your mind. Receive it. You would not say, oh, please give me your $5 million. While I don't deserve it and cannot earn it, please give it to me. Please, please, please. You wouldn't say that. And yet, here's God who wants to offer you salvation, a free gift, wants to offer you forgiveness of sins. And this response encourages us to do that very thing, asking God for something that he's already promised to give us. And you see that asking Jesus into your heart, when you look at it from that perspective, is really a subtle form of unbelief. Because now you're not trusting God to do what he said he's already gonna do when you put your faith in Christ. And so we're talking about a a much bigger issue here than just semantics or just word choice. You know that no one has ever been saved by asking Jesus into the heart? That is not the way people get saved. Now, I will say this, they may have put their trust in Christ. They may be saved and confused. That definitely can happen. But no one got saved because they asked Jesus in their heart. They got saved when they put their trust in Christ. And here's the sad thing about it is they're shifting 
uh, the issue of salvation to what you must do instead of what Christ has already done. See, that's the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. It's a finished work. It's been accomplished on your behalf. And what's really sad about this whole situation is, is this shift of focus. Um, and then it causes a lack of assurance, as we, we kind of detailed. Now, reason number five, you should not ask Jesus in your heart. Let's get into the Bible a little bit this morning. Those were kind of points. Let's look at Revelation 3.20, because Revelation 3.20 is typically a verse that's used. Oh, do you have a verse where you can ask Jesus in your heart? Oh, yeah, Revelation 3.20, that teaches it. That's typically the, the proof text for Revelation 3.20. So join me there. Very last book uh, in the Bible. And let's read Revelation 3.20. It says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, here's the great thing about Revelation 3.20. In fact, it's the great thing about every verse that ever existed in the Bible. Is it's not on an island by itself. Okay, it's, it's in a context, which means it's in a paragraph, it's in a chapter, it's in a book, it's in a testament. Okay, so we've got some context here to dive through. And so first thing I just want you to notice in Revelation 3.20 is that the words ask, Jesus, and heart are not even found in this verse. Okay, the very verse that's supposed to prove that you have to ask Jesus in your heart doesn't even contain the main terms. Now, I will grant them that Jesus is speaking, so let's give them that one. Jesus is in the verse. He's implied. He's speaking. I got it. But the concept of asking Jesus in your heart is not even found in this verse. What's the context here? What's the audience? Well, those of you that have a study Bible or like to, or have your Bible breaks out into sections, you can see what the context is. This is one of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, verse 14 of chapter three, it says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? So he's, who's he talking about here? Is he giving a method by which to get saved? Or is this a message to people who are believers already, the church? Well, it's a church. This is the context of who he's writing to here. He's not giving a how-to on how to get saved. That's in Romans chapters one through five, which we've been looking at. That's the how-to. So here he's talking to the church. And what does he say to the church? Well, let's read it. Um, Verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What's he vomiting out? Them because of their works. He's not accepting their works. Why? He gives us 17. Why is he not accepting them? Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, what a list of distinction there. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may See, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Notice that he rebukes and chastens. Chastens means disciplines. 
That's, that's child training. You know, there are times that I wish I could discipline kids in my neighborhood, right? Help them out along the way a little bit. But I can't touch kids in the neighborhood. I can't discipline them. Why? They're not my kids, okay? You're going to notice that when God uh, uses some C words in the Bible, one is chastening, and that's always an indicator that he's talking about his children. And then he used condemnation, and that indicates he's talking about those that aren't his children, okay? So we see this idea of chastening. That should cue us off as well. And then there's a good use of the word repent in here. Verse 19, he says, be zealous and repent. Now, what does repent mean? We're going to cover this in one sermon next week where repent of sins or repent from your sins, that phrase is never found in the Bible. And we'll look at how that's used in gospel presentations. So I'd encourage you to join us next week if that's of interest to you. But the word repent uh, from, from the Greek just means a change of mind. And so let me ask you, we haven't even got it, dove into this study. There's so much more that could be drawn out from what Jesus just said to this church. But if you had to guess or, or understand what they were to change their mind about, what would it be? Well, they think they're rich. They think they got it all together. They think they are God's gift to the church. And they need to change their mind about that. They got some issues, buddy. And they don't even realize it. In fact, their issues are so great that when we get into Revelation 3.20, the image that Jesus provides is they are doing church and Jesus is out knocking on the door to try to get in and be a part of the service. You know, it's interesting. It's been said, and I think it's right, that when the rapture of the church happens one day, that there'll be some churches where nobody will be missing that next Sunday. And that is what is illustrated here, that Jesus wants to be a part of this fellowship, that Jesus wants to be the head, not only of this local body, but of every true body in the world. And here in the church of Laodicea, Jesus is relegated to being outdoor knocking, trying to get in. How do I see this? Well, let's keep going. 320, what door is Jesus knocking on? Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, he's knocking at the door of the church. Not someone's heart. That's, that, see, that's the interpretation. That's where they change the interpretation. Now it's all about Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And if you let him in, he'll come in. Now there's a couple of reasons why that can't be the case. And it's just simple observation. One of the simple observation, you can look up here, but look at verse 20. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Two words, into, not one word, into. Now, why is that important? Because into means he comes into the church over to the individual that opens the door, not into them. Okay. See the distinction there. He's coming into the church over to that individual, not into the individual's heart. This is what he's communicating. And what's he want to do when he gets there? He wants to come in to the church, over to him, and dine with him, and he with me. And what does that illustrate? Well, it illustrates fellowship. He wants to sit down and have a meal and be in intimate fellowship with his children. And right now, he can't have that. Why? Because they're not in fellowship with him. They've got him outside the door. And he's, still, he's out there banging on the door, trying to get into his church. And they won't even let him in. They need to change their mind about that. They need to open the door and be brought back into fellowship with the one who died for him and rose again. This is not a verse that teaches you how to get saved. And finally, reason number six, 
um, it confuses rather than clarify the condition of salvation. It confuses rather than clarify the condition of salvation, and it especially does this for children. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you why. Um, this is why most children have asked Jesus in their heart more than once also. There's a confusion there. They're not, they're not comfortable with this. And part of the reason um, is that they feel like it, it clarifies. They think this cliche helps children understand or communicate. But frankly, the opposite appears to be true. Here's what's crazy about kids is they actually believe thinking very concretely, not abstractly. That's, that's just learning theory. That's just research on the way kids are. And you know exactly what, what this looks like. In fact, there's an example of a four-year-old girl who was watching a medical program on TV with her parents. And I don't know why they were letting her watch this, but this is a related story to me. During this, uh, there was a heart operation, and they actually showed the doctors lifting the heart <laughs> out of the body. And she looked over to her dad, and she said, Daddy, is, is he giving his heart to Jesus? See, and you know, you, you've got example. If you have kids, that's how they think. They're very concrete. Uh, it reminds me of another uh, story that was related to me of a kid who, who leaned in uh, during a church service on, on, her, on her mom's chest, and she heard the mom's heart beating. And, and the little kid looked up at her mom and she says, oh, that's really cool. She said, I can hear Jesus in your heart. And, and the mom said, well, what's he doing? She said, I think he's percolating some coffee. <laughs> She hears this stuff. But I'm just saying, kids think concretely. They don't think abstractly. And you know what's, what's crazy about this is when they're confronted with the appeal to ask Jesus in their heart, they think that he's coming into the organ that pumps blood. That's how concrete they are. So it actually distracts. You know, you, you, I mean, taking this so concrete, if you did have to have a heart transplant, does that mean you're no longer saved? Because he was in this heart. Now that one's going out. I'm like, well, I don't know if I want that heart. Because, I mean, he, has, he asked Jesus in his heart. You know, I mean, it gets to the point of ridiculous. And here's the thing I want to encourage you. And I want to, and I'll repeat this as we, we meet with the VBS volunteers uh, here in a little bit. Do you know that kids can understand the concept of trust? Tell me, tell me that little girl doesn't understand the concept of trust. As she put up there, and, and you know, that's twice her height. I mean, I'm sure that looked really high for her. And she said, you know how kids are like, oh yeah, I'll jump off, put me up there. And then they get off and they're, they go, whoa, I'm like, I don't want to jump. And what do, what do dads say? What do we say as dads? Come on, trust me, I'll, I'll catch you. Just trust me, just jump, I'll catch you. And what does the child do? They trust their dad, you know. They might size him up and be like, okay, yeah. He's got some, you know, 34-inch pythons like Hulk Hogan. Okay, he can trust. No, but they know, they know dad. If dad says, trust me, I'll catch you, he'll catch you, you know. They understand it at a playground, up on a slide. Come on, come on down, I'll catch you. Trust me. You know, if they were by chance in a burning house and they were on a second story, you know, with their life at stake, do you think they'd be able to understand trust? Trust me, jump, I'll catch you. Trust me. Kids can understand trust. Kids can understand relying upon. Kids can understand resting in. These are all synonyms for faith that actually help illustrate the concept a little bit better. Kids can understand that. So why give them something that's going to confuse the daylights out of them? Why do it? It doesn't even clarify. It doesn't even do what it was designed to do. It muddies the water worst. Let me share a couple of disturbing statistics with you. 
Awana put out a, st- a statistic many years ago, and they, uh, I don't even think they do this anymore, um, but they, they used to give a gospel accuracy survey uh, to some 18,000 pastors and Christian workers involved with the Awana program. 13,500 of the 18,000 agreed with the gospel invitation right now, ask Jesus to come into your heart. That's 75% of workers in Awana that agreed to that invitation. That ought to break our hearts. That's, that's not even biblical. And if Doc Latham and Art Rorschach knew, those are the two founders of Awana, knew what was going on with their program, they would roll over in their grave because those guys were passionate about clarity, passionate about making much of Jesus Christ, passionate about what Jesus did and what he accomplished. They didn't want to distract from his work, and yet now many of the workers are distracting from that very work. You know, another sad story. One night uh, at, a, at a club, um, the club was dismissed, the Iwana Club was dismissed, and one of the leaders found a, a little girl back in the corner um, all by herself, and she was just standing up, standing uh, on her feet, looking up with her mouth open, just standing there. Church leader watched her for a couple minutes. She hadn't moved, and I wonder if she's okay. That looks a little weird. So he goes up to her, and she's, he says, what? what are you doing? Like, what are you doing back here? And she said, I'm waiting for Jesus to come into my heart. See, it's, it's distracting. It's harmful uh, in, in a sense. It doesn't give anybody confidence and we want them resting in what Jesus did. We want their confidence to be in him. Now, I know that there's going to be some objections to this and that's okay. I mean, um, you know, the first time I, I was even introduced to this concept, I was, I was mad. I'll be honest. I was really mad. Because I, I use this all the time with people. I told people, they, hey, you got to ask Jesus in your heart. That was my evangelism go-to phrase. And so I, I literally had a, I was listening to a tape that a friend had given me, and I almost threw the tape out the window. I was that mad. It was my friend's tape. That's the only reason it stayed in the car, because uh, I had to give it back to him. Um, but, you know, it began to, began to think through it, and I said, you know, he's right. This is, this is unbiblical. And if I claim that I want to be biblical, I want to be clear. This is an important message. We're not, we're not just making spaghetti here. Like, I, I mean, if you get a pinch of oregano in there versus two pinch, who cares? It's still going to be okay. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about where people spend eternity. So why would we want to mess around with that? Or even just be nonchalant about it. So objection one that I, that I hear often is, isn't this just simply a matter of semantics? Just, uh, it's just saying the same thing. It's just semantics, right? My answer to this is yes and no. It is a matter of semantics if you mean that word meanings and definitions are very important. But yeah, it's a, def, it's a matter of semantics. It, words are important. My answer is yes. If you mean that God intended to use words in their normal way to communicate how one is saved. Like when he says believe, he, he meant believe. When he said Jesus did it all, he, he meant Jesus did it all. I'm okay. If, but, but my answer is no. If you mean that trusting Christ in him alone and asking Jesus in your heart are the same thing. They're not the same thing. It is not an issue of just semantics in that case. They're not the same thing. They can't be the same thing by definition. If words have any meaning whatsoever, they can't be the same thing. Objection two, does it really matter as long as you're sincere? Doesn't God know your heart? Does God know our hearts? Yes. I mean, yeah, you got me there. God knows our hearts. I, I'm with you on that completely. 
But has anyone ever gotten saved by asking Jesus in their hearts? No. Nobody's ever gotten saved by asking Jesus in their heart. Now, are some people confused who have put their trust in Christ? Yeah, I, I think that's probably a lot of people who communicate this message are people who are saved but confused. Um, the sad thing about it is that their gospel uh, will save no one. If that's the message they give to people, that you have to ask Jesus in your heart, no one can get saved by that message. They have to put their faith in Christ. Um, and many people have been con- confused by this cliche. Now, accuracy matters in this area if, if you believe the following things. If you believe that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. Now, if you're, if you're one of those people who think, well, there's many ways to get to heaven. God's going to sort it out when we all get there. This, is, this message was probably a colossal waste of your time because you're like, what's he making such a big deal about this. But if you, but if you actually believe Romans 116, that, that it's the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, then accuracy is going to matter. We want to tell people to believe the gospel because that's how people get saved. Accuracy matters if you believe that a correct understanding of God's plan of salvation truly determines where one will spend eternity. If you, if you have a concept of God that he's just going to grade on the curve, uh, you just do your best, you might get there, kind of thing. Again, this message was a colossal waste of time for you. But if you actually believe that God's plan is truly exclusive and truly unique and truly centered on the person and finished work of Christ— then this is going to be important to you because this is determining people's eternities. And then finally, if accuracy matters, if you believe that you have a responsibility to teach the word of God or to communicate the word of God, just like God gave it. If you're like, well, yeah, God said this, but I, I really think it could have been put better this way. I, I mean, just tell me, if, I'm just not going to stand next to you if you actually think that. No, I'm kidding. But if you believe you have a responsibility uh, to just communicate this, just like God gave it, then this type of accuracy is going to matter to you. As I mentioned, next week we're going to cover the topic of repentance and where that fits in relation to salvation. And then the following week we'll get back into Romans, verse by verse, expository teaching, moving on to sanctification. And remember, when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about God's present salvation from the power of sin. And that's where all of us are living day to day. And so I'd invite you to keep um, coming out for that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for um, your word. And Lord, we just, um, we just thank you for Jesus and what he did for us. We want him to be, as, as we leave here this morning, we really just want him to be exalted um, in our thinking, to be the forefront of our, our minds uh, as we go about our work week. Lord, inevitably we'll face uh, trials, um, this week of some sort, and so may, may he be the first thought in our mind as we do that. We pray for the, the Vacation Bible School this week, Lord. Would you give us uh, the volunteers, give those volunteers energy and clarity as they prepare, as they get ready for the, the start tomorrow, as they minister to these children. Give them insight and wisdom uh, and understanding and clarity as they share your word with these kids. And Lord, we lift them up to you. We pray for the group um, coming home from Minnesota, that you'd get them here safely. We look forward to hearing their testimony next week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.